Hello, Campus Cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a 5. In 1993, Sophie Sergi, a young woman visiting the University of Alaska Fairbanks, was found raped and murdered in an on-campus dorm. After 29 years of investigators working the case, but never really having any particular suspect to zone in on, justice has ultimately prevailed. This year, in 2022, investigators were finally able to hold Sophie's killer accountable thanks to advancements in DNA technology, proving once again that you can certainly run, but you cannot hide from your own DNA. This episode is titled Sophie's Story, DNA Serves Justice. So without further ado, let's get started. Sergi was a native Alaskan who grew up in Pitkiss Point, a small western village in Alaska with a population of only about 109 people, according to the 2010 census. Sophie was always a dedicated student who received good grades, and for those good grades, she earned herself a scholarship in 1990 to attend the University of Alaska Fairbanks, or UAF for short. Sophie attended college for two years, but when she ended up needing some extra cash to have some dental work done, she decided to take a year off from school and work while she saved up the money. So Sophie went back home to Pickus Point and got a job for the local school district as a teaching assistant. In April of 1993, 20-year-old Sophie had finally saved up enough cash to go ahead and proceed with that dental work, so she set up her appointment. Her appointment, though, would be in Fairbanks, where she had been attending college, so she decided to make a whole trip out of it, you know, like fly to Fairbanks for a weekend, stay with a college friend on campus and catch up with all of her other friends, and then she would go to her orthodontist appointment, that's the type of dentist that she was going to, so she would go to her orthodontist appointment on Monday before wrapping up the weekend and then flying back home to Pickus Point on that Monday. Before she left on the trip, though, Sophie's mother, Elena Sergi, recalled that she went to a local store and bought an old, unwanted kite for her three-year-old little brother. When she gave it to him, Sophie told him that if he promised to be good and behave while she was away, she'd bring him back a bigger and better kite. (laughs) On Friday, April 23, 1993, Sophie began her weekend getaway. She flew from her home in Pitkiss Point to Bethel, Alaska, and then on to Anchorage from there. In Anchorage on that Friday, she spent the night with a family friend, and then the next day, on Saturday, April 24th, Sophie flew on to Fairbanks. 
Once in Fairbanks, Sophie went to the university and stayed on campus with her friend, Shirley Wasuli, who stayed on the second floor of the Bartlett Hall dormitory. Though Bartlett Hall was considered to be a partially co-ed dormitory at the time, the second floor was designated for female students only. Just a side note, according to the UAF website, Bartlett Hall is an eight-story building that opened in 1969. And then in 1992, so right around the time that Sophie was attending school there, UAF designated the first two ever co-ed floors on campus in that Bartlett Hall dormitory. So today, however, in 2022, the whole building is considered co-ed by floor. Anyway, as previously mentioned, Sophie intended to stay the weekend with Shirley in the dorm and then go to her orthodontist appointment Monday morning. And then again, like I said, after her appointment, she was scheduled to fly back home. According to court documentation, Sophie spent Saturday morning running errands in Fairbanks, and then she spent the evening and night hanging out with friends on campus. The next day, on Sunday, April 25th, Sophie basically just hung out in and around Bartlett Hall kind of a chill, stay-at-home kind of day. And then later on Sunday evening, she went to a movie with three other friends. When the movie was over, the group of friends weren't quite ready to call it a night, so the three went for a drive to the Murphy Dome Recreation Area. Court documentation notes that Sophie was dropped back off at Bartlett Hall by those three friends um, on campus sometime around midnight, where she met back up with her friend Shirley, as well as Shirley's boyfriend, Noah Naylor. The three of them ordered some pizza, hung out, and just kind of chilled in Shirley's dorm room for a while before Sophie decided to make her way to the commons area to grab something to drink. She returned to the dorm for a short while, but after a few minutes, Sophie decided she wanted to go outside and smoke a cigarette. Her friend Shirley, though, told Sophie that it was too cold outside, so she suggested that Sophie go to the women's shower room and, you know, like, smoke near the exhaust vents. (laughs) That way she wouldn't freeze her tushy off while standing outside in the cold. Apparently, though, and this is important, so I want to go ahead and kind of go through this part with you guys, but apparently Sophie had gone outside off and on that day to smoke with other young people on campus, like in an outside common area called the Hess Commons, which... I kind of picture it like a courtyard type of area that joins three different residence halls, including Bartlett Hall, where Sophie was staying, as well as Moore and Scarland Halls. James Halpin for the Anchorage Daily News reported in 2009 that Sophie had been out to smoke cigarettes in that area around midnight on Sunday, which probably means she had been outside smoking with that group of people after she returned from the movies, but then sometime before she ordered pizza with Shirley and Shirley's boyfriend. Then, you know, as temperatures dropped and it became increasingly colder outside, uh, Shirley suggested Sophie smoke in the shower room with the exhaust vents, you know, instead of going outside. However, according to the Anchorage Daily News article, the group of people who were outside smoking with Sophie earlier in the night were key potential witnesses because they were some of the last people to see her alive other than Shirley and her boyfriend. So when Sophie stepped out of the room and headed to the women's shower room, you know, on that second floor where she was staying, Shirley and her boyfriend Noah decided they would go stay in Noah's dorm room for the night, which was in a different residence hall. That was around 1.30 a.m., according to court documents. But at that point, Sophie hadn't returned from smoking yet. But Shirley thought, you know what, I'll just leave her a note saying she can have the room to herself for the night and let her know that we're going to go stay in Noah's room. So Shirley left the note and she and Noah headed out. 
Though they didn't know it at the time, though, when Sophie left the room that final time, that would be the last time that anyone besides her killer would see her alive. The next morning, on Monday, April 26th, Shirley returned to her dorm room shortly before 9 a.m. When she walked in, she immediately noticed that Sophie was not there, and as she looked around, it looked like Sophie hadn't slept there either. Shirley later told the Anchorage Daily News, quote, I was a bit agitated that she had left my door unlocked, and in hindsight, I look back on it, and when I walked in, my bed was still made. She hadn't slept on it, and odd things like that that I didn't right away notice when I walked in, end quote. Shirley also soon realized that the note she had written to Sophie was still there, in the same place she had left it just a few hours earlier. Now, at first, Shirley didn't jump to conclusions, but she was perplexed. I mean, where could Sophie have gone? Where did she sleep if not there in the room? So Shirley looked around the dorm and the commons area, but found no sign of Sophie anywhere. A little later that day, Shirley decided to call Sophie's orthodontist, you know, just to see if she ever even made it to her appointment. And they told her no, that Sophie had missed her appointment that morning. Clearly, Shirley was concerned and worried for her friend, but that worry soon turned into tragedy-stricken grief. On Monday afternoon, at around 2.45 p.m., court documents say that UAF janitors were cleaning the women's bathroom on the east side of the second floor of Bartlett Hall when they discovered a gruesome scene. In the bathtub, which sat in a room by itself next to the shower stalls, janitors found the body of a young woman lying on her back. She had been brutally murdered, and it appeared that she had been sexually assaulted because her pants and underpants were pulled down past her knees, and her sweater had been pushed up around her neck and armpits, leaving her partially exposed. Of course, the janitors sprung into action and called police right away, who showed up to secure the scene. It didn't take them long to positively identify the victim as 20-year-old Sophie Sergi. A couple days later, on April 28, 1993, an autopsy revealed that Sophie had ultimately been killed by a single gunshot to the back of her head, and it appeared to be a close contact shooting, meaning she was murdered execution style. But not before whatever sick son of a bitch stabbed her multiple times with a thin blade knife and raped her. Now, you'd think, with as much activity going on at all hours of the day and night in this dorm, that somebody would have seen or heard something. I mean, how can you have this truly awful, gory scene and virtually no witnesses? But that's the problem investigators ran into from the very beginning of this case. People just didn't see anything, and if they did, they weren't talking. The only major witness statement came from a female resident of Bartlett Hall who was showering when the whole thing was taking place. Talk about a scene straight out of a horror movie. I mean, I literally have chills just talking about it. But the young woman told investigators that she was taking a shower around 1.30 a.m. and she reported hearing noises coming from the tub room, including thumping and muffled voices. Apparently, investigators canvassed Bartlett Hall and surrounding areas, but it was difficult to collect much evidence because so many students had been in and out already between the time Sophie was murdered and when her body was discovered. They also interviewed as many students in the residence hall as possible, but even that was proving to be a difficult task. You see, April 26th was very close to the end of the semester, and a lot of students were focused on finals and packing up their stuff to go home for the summer. 
Basically, in the few days following the murder, students scattered, which meant there were many students whom investigators never had the chance to interview. One cold case investigator, Lindy Minnick, told the Anchorage Daily News that even trying to track them down after they left was a problem. Minnick said, quote, We do have rosters from the university of the students that were in some of the dormitories at the time. However, we are learning from a lot of students that lived there that there was a lot of switching around of rooms and some people were not always in the rooms that they were listed as being in, end quote. And honestly, if, I mean, if that's the case, I can only imagine just how frustrating that must have been for the investigators who were trying to solve the case. Crime scene investigators did swab Sophie's body for DNA evidence, and the samples were sent to the Alaska State Crime Detection Lab for analysis. However, at the time, in 1993, court documents note that DNA technology was not yet being used in Alaska. DNA technology wasn't utilized until the late 90s, and even then, it was in the very early stages. So, needless to say, the DNA sample was held, but they couldn't do much with it at the time. They had to rely on other pieces of evidence to help them solve the case, which doesn't seem like there was much of, especially because they were having such a hard time tracking down potential witnesses to give statements of what they may or may not have seen. Though, I could go on and on about how I really don't think they actually worked the case as hard as they made it seem, at least not in the immediate days following the murder. But (laughs) I'll keep those comments to myself for now. Anyway, it probably doesn't surprise you to hear that the case went cold. Students at UAF went on with their summer and returned the next fall to start a whole new year, all while Sophie's killer was still at large. When they were initially processing the crime scene, though, back in 1993, they did recover the bullet used to kill Sophie, but never the actual murder weapon. Nevertheless, they sent the bullet to a crime lab for testing as well. According to court documents, quote, the bullet was determined to be a 22 caliber displaying six lands and grooves with a right hand twist, but a possible murder weapon was never recovered for comparison purposes, end quote. I'll be honest (laughs) and say I really have no idea what that means exactly. I mean, as far as the description of the bullet and those grooves and all that stuff. But I can say definitively that it means they found the bullet and tested it, but they never found a gun to match the bullet to. Anyway, in the late 90s, when DNA evidence was still in its infancy stages, investigators did run the DNA sample they collected at the scene for comparison. But none of the comparisons yielded any positive results or matches. The next movement in the case didn't come until May of 2000, when the DNA sample was processed for a second time using a more advanced type of DNA analysis. This time, they did get some results, but not necessarily anything they weren't already kind of suspicious of. They were able to determine that the DNA sample was from a male suspect. So, at the very least, they could officially narrow their suspect pool to only males who had access to the dorm in 1993. They believed it was someone who lived in Bartlett Hall or even in one of the other nearby dorms, and it was someone who was familiar with the campus and able to blend in. But here's the thing. They never said if they were ever eyeing particular suspects or if they had anyone specific in their sights. And honestly, they must have not had anybody they were zoned in on because, according to court documents, The male DNA profile was compared in national databases, but no identification could ever be made. 
This meant that no known male criminal offenders with DNA profiles that had been uploaded to the database matched the DNA profile developed from those swabs collected from the scene. Court documents state, quote, As the years went by, additional suspects were explored and DNA samples were collected, but all potential suspects were eliminated as the source of the unidentified DNA. By the end of 2003, the investigation had gone dormant, end quote. So, once again, Sophie's case went cold. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. From 2003 to 2009, various investigators with the Alaska State Troopers continued to work on Sophie's case, but no concrete leads could ever be developed. In 2007, investigators reopened the case and began re-interviewing witnesses from the dorms. And in 2009, they renewed their pleas for people who were there that night in Bartlett Hall to come forward. You see, they originally believed that sometime between 1 and 5 a.m. on April 26th, Sophie was stabbed, raped, and shot, and then left for dead in the bathtub in the second floor women's bathroom at Bartlett Hall. For years, the bathroom was considered to be the sole crime scene. However, according to the reporting of James Halpin for the Anchorage Daily News, an external review of the case by an independent forensic examiner concluded that might not be exactly what happened. Investigators never said what evidence specifically pointed to the possibility that the bathroom might not have been the actual crime scene, and they did acknowledge that they were far from certain. But it was still a possibility, and they were hoping it might jog some memories of those who were there in Bartlett Hall in April of 1993. The cold case investigator at the time, Jim Stogsdill, said, quote, We think if she was brought to the bathroom after her death, then she was killed someplace else in Bartlett Hall, which naturally would mean a dormitory room. If that's the case, and she was killed in one of the upper floors, then there's people up there who may have heard or saw something that they didn't put any significance to, believing that the crime occurred on the second floor, when in fact it could have occurred right down the hall from them, end quote. Also, side note, it's critical to point out that investigators who took over the case in the early to mid-2000s noted that the dorm was never completely locked down and searched for any signs of a struggle somewhere other than the bathroom. So yeah, I'm not sure they worked the case, in the beginning at least, very thoroughly at all. Anyway, moving on. So one of the people that they ended up re-interviewing was a guy by the name of Nicholas Dazer. At the time of the murder, Dazer was a resident of Bartlett Hall, and he had a roommate by the name of Stephen Downs. 
According to court documents, both Dazer and Downs were initially interviewed in 1993, and they had both denied having any relevant knowledge about Sophie or her brutal attack and murder. Actually, at the time Sophie was killed, Dazer was not only a student at UAF, but he also was working as a security guard for the university. Apparently, he was on duty the night of Sophie's murder, and he subsequently assisted police on April 26th in securing the crime scene and ensuring it was not disturbed. However, investigators later learned in 2010 that Dazer had been fired from his job as a campus security guard for possessing a firearm, which was not permitted in the dorms on campus. So, when investigators re-interviewed him, Dazer admitted to being fired for having that firearm, and he stated that he remembered the incident with Sophie quite well, but he also affirmed that he did not know any other information that could help their investigation. Additionally, he told them that he never owned a 22 caliber gun, you know, the type of weapon used to kill Sophie, but he did tell investigators that he remembered his roommate, Stephen Downs, keeping an H&R model 22 caliber revolver in their dorm room in 1993. In fact, Dazer stated that Downs not only owned that gun, but he also had several other guns in the room as well. When investigators looked into this, they first had to determine if the H&R model of gun could have been used to kill Sophie. And lo and behold, a firearms expert confirmed that the bullet collected at the crime scene was consistent with having been fired out of an H&R 22 caliber revolver. However, the expert also noted that the bullet could also be consistent with a large number of other 22 caliber firearms. This meant that they did not have any concrete evidence against Downs or anyone, and the case, once again, went cold, especially after investigator Stogsdale retired. The next break in the case, which would ultimately lead investigators to Sophie's killer, came in 2018 when investigator Randy McFerrin took over the case and decided to consider another approach that had not yet been explored. Enter genetic genealogy testing. It's a complicated process if I tried to explain the nitty-gritty details to you, but think Ancestry.com, 23andMe, you know, all those genetic genealogy DNA companies. Not only are they linking long-lost relatives and providing people with information about their genetic history, but they are quite literally helping to catch criminals who have evaded the law for years just by connecting them to relatives who have submitted DNA to the databases. It's kind of genius, to be honest, and the technology kind of blows me away. Anyway, so McFerrin reached out to one of these labs that conduct genealogical testing, and the lab agreed to analyze the forensic DNA sample collected in Sophie's case. According to court documentation, quote, The comparison identifies relatives of the suspect, and those names are given to a forensic genealogist who then employs standard genealogy research methods to potentially narrow the scope and identify the suspect, end quote. And in this case, you can thank the dude's aunt, whose DNA ultimately linked back to the sorry excuse of a person who attacked and murdered Sophie. Ultimately, based on the DNA profile from the crime scene and comparison to DNA in the system, as well as a thorough process of elimination, investigators were led to one person and one person only, Stephen Harris Downs, you know, the security guard's roommate who kept that H&R model 22 caliber revolver in his dorm room. Investigators soon discovered that Downs was born in Maine, which is where he graduated from high school in June of 1992. 
He then went on to the University of Alaska Fairbanks, where he attended college until 1996. After college, Downs lived in Arizona for a while before eventually returning back to Maine. He was most recently employed as a nurse, which makes me gag, and he was living in the Auburn, Maine area. On February 13, 2019, Maine State Police, working in conjunction with Alaska State Troopers, went to Downs' home to interview him. According to CBS News, in Downs' initial conversation with investigators, he denied knowing Sophie or keeping a gun in his room at all. He told them that he remembered the incident, and when he was shown a picture of Sophie, he said that he recognized her from posters that had been put up on campus, you know, like in the days and weeks after her murder. And he told them, quote, I remember the pictures. It's terrible. Poor girl. End quote. However, he also said that he did not know her and didn't believe he had ever spoken to her or seen her. He then proceeded to provide police with somewhat of an alibi, I guess. He told them he lived on the third floor of the dorm, but he mostly stayed with his girlfriend at the time, who lived on the fourth floor. He said that on that night of the murder, he had been in his girlfriend's room and that he didn't believe he had ever been on the second floor of the building. He repeatedly told detectives that he thinks soldiers from Fort Wainwright were responsible for the crime because apparently they were often in the building. Clearly, the investigators weren't believing any of his bullshit, and the next day, on February 14, 2019, they executed a search warrant for Downs' home, and they also swabbed him for DNA. They sent the DNA swab to a crime lab for immediate testing, and a day later, on February 15th, the lab confirmed that Downs' DNA profile matched the DNA sample taken from the crime scene. They officially had their guy. Madeline McGee for the Anchorage Daily News reported that Downs was immediately taken into custody without incident, and he was extradited back to Alaska, where he faced a grand jury and was indicted on charges of murder in the first degree and sexual assault in the first degree. Downs was a freshman, only 18 years old, when he brutally attacked and murdered Sophie. And for over 20 years, he stayed under the radar and evaded police. But his DNA eventually caught up with him, and he officially went on trial for the murder and sexual assault of Sophie Sergi in January of 2022. At the trial, Downs' defense attorney did his best to poke holes in the prosecution's case and, you know, like bring up reasonable doubt, but that effort didn't get him very far. Alaska Public Media reported that the defense claimed that Downs was with his girlfriend at the time of the murder. They were in her room with other students, drinking and watching movies, but the prosecution came back and pointed out that Downs' girlfriend at the time remembered something particularly interesting. Special Prosecutor Jenna Gruenstein told the jury, quote, In fact, what she said was, he was in and out of her room, that he wasn't there the whole night, particularly in the very early hours of April 26th. She knew that he wasn't there because that was when Bill Wilson tried to kiss her, and she knew for sure Mr. Downs wasn't in the room when that happened, end quote. Then, while the prosecution focused on the DNA evidence, that, you know, does not lie, and they pointed out that Downs' DNA matched the DNA from the crime scene, Downs' defense said it could be from consensual sex. Um, okay, but defense attorney James Howanik said, quote, We don't know what Sophie did Saturday night. We don't know if she went to a party. We don't know who she hung out with. We do know she had an eclectic group of friends, some of them up on the third floor where Stephen Downs lived, end quote. 
The defense also focused on problems with the investigation and discussed a contaminated crime scene because, quote, 19 people, including students and possibly even the media, had been to the bathtub scene before Jim and his team arrived, end quote. Jim McCann, or James McCann, was the lead investigator in 1993. And... Finally, the defense pointed out that the state never connected Downs with a murder weapon, claiming none of the guns Downs ever owned was positively connected to the shooting. Regardless, no matter how much the defense argued, the DNA match was more than enough overwhelming evidence to prove Downs' guilt. After deliberating for two days, on February 10, 2022, the jury found 47-year-old Stephen Downs guilty of first-degree rape and murder. Then, in September of this year, 2022, Downs, now 48 years old, was sentenced to 75 years in an Alaska state prison. His defense contended that anything longer than 20 years would be a death sentence for him because, I guess, he weighs over 400 pounds and has high blood pressure. But I say, good luck to you, man. (laughs) However, CBS News reported that Downs is eligible for discretionary parole in 25 years. But y'all, this guy is seriously scum of the earth. Through their investigation and the murder trial, law enforcement discovered that while he had been working as a nurse in Maine, he accrued several reprimands on his nursing license for unprofessional conduct. Go figure. Apparently, on multiple occasions, he made inappropriate comments to co-workers that made them super uncomfortable. For this, in 2016, he was required to take a training course titled Professional Boundaries in Nursing. According to documentation from the Maine Licensing Board, Downs received his nursing license in July of 2011, but it is now listed as expired as of February 10th, 2021, and the status is set to failed to renew, meaning his license is no longer eligible for renewal at all. Um, exactly how it should be. Though it was definitely justice served, it was incredibly unfortunate that Sophie's mother, Elena Sergi, couldn't see it through. According to CBS News, Elena Sergi passed away in 2021, which was after Downs' arrest, but before his trial, so she didn't have the chance to see her daughter's killer brought to justice once and for all. One of Sophie's brothers, Alexi, shared how much the whole thing had been weighing on their mother through the years. He said, quote, On special occasions, she'd burst out crying for a little bit, and she'd start a prayer and start praying. I said to myself, you know, one of these days they'll find the guy. They will find him. Nobody can hide for so long, end quote. But before I officially conclude this episode, I want to bring you back around to the day Sophie was leaving for Fairbanks, the day Sophie bought that tattered old kite and gave it to her little brother. Before Sophie's mother passed away, Elena told the Anchorage Daily News that she last spoke to Sophie on the phone at about 4 p.m. the day before her death. During their last conversation, Elena said they were still talking about that kite, and Elena told Sophie that a friend had went with her little brother to take the kite out to fly. So I can only imagine just how special that kite ended up being to not only Elena, but also to Sophie's brother. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 41. As always, be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. So check me out on there and let me know what you think of this week's episode. 
You can also reach me by email at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com. And you can be sure to keep checking out my TikTok for some additional campus crime stories. Also, please don't forget that my new goal is 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'm currently at like 88, so seriously only like 12 more to go. So help me out, y'all, and keep those ratings coming. (laughs) Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.